The cross. It was meant to horrify the world. It was meant for humiliation. It was meant to last for days. It was meant for slow asphyxiation. It was meant to prolong torture. It was the Roman soldier's job. It was meant to be used by Caesar, but instead, it was used by God. It was meant to stop a movement, but instead, it became the way. It was meant to act on fear, but instead, it awakened faith. It was meant to be vicious and violent, but instead, it became our peace. It was meant to uproot hope, but instead, it became the seed. It was meant to punish captives, but instead, it unleashed freedom. It was meant to build up Rome, but instead, it built God's kingdom. It was meant to discourage rebels. It was meant to stop insurrection. It was meant to put down Jesus, but instead it set up his resurrection. It was meant to jeer and mock him, but instead it was his glory. It was meant to erase a chapter, but instead it became the story. It was meant to hold up convicts, but instead it raised up a king. It was meant to shut our mouth, but instead it's why we sing. It was meant to be a judgment, but instead it became our mercy. It's why the song of heaven is the lamb. The lamb is worthy. It was meant to kill an enemy, crush dissenters and diversion, but instead it became the banner of God's love for every person. It was meant to be appalling, nailing hands and feet to wood. It was meant to be used for evil, but instead it was used for good. It was meant to be a symbol of God's assassination, but instead it became the symbol of Jesus' invitation. Come to the cross. My wife and I, um, Kara, my wife and I have been traveling a lot. I don't know if you noticed, but I've been gone for like three of the last four Sundays. <laughs> but one of the cool things about a church like this is with people that come from all over the place is that I get the opportunity to go to where they are and officiate weddings. So a lot of the weddings we do are actually not here because a lot of our families are not from here. So I had three destination weddings. Now you think Bahamas, Hawaii. No, I'm thinking East Tyler, Texas. St. Joe, Missouri, and St. Louis, Missouri. So over almost 40 hours of driving, the last three weekends out of the last five. And when we travel that much, and we're on the road that much, it's inevitable. It happens every time that I think about it, and that you come upon a car accident. And we were traveling, we're just outside of St. Louis, and all of a sudden, you know, all the lights in front of us, you guys know what I-70's like going to St. Louis, a lot of traffic, a lot of, and all of a sudden, here's all the taillights start hitting, and you're thinking, uh-oh, something's happened. And you know this feeling. Your stomach starts to come up a little bit, your heart moves a little higher into your throat, your stomach moves up in your chest. And then true enough, there was a semi and two cars involved. 
And why is the traffic so backed up? Because it was on the other side, because we all slow down to take a look. And they're always a horrible thing to behold. You kind of, if you've been to a car accident, you know how you can empathize with those that are there, but we just can't help but look. Tonight we are going to go by a traumatic event that is something like a bad car accident, but it's way bigger, and it's much worse. But we're not going to drive by. We're going to stop. We're going to get out, and we're going to get close. Tonight we're going to go back to a time and a place where most of us don't want to go. But in some sense, we need to go back, and that's why you've all gathered here and why those have joined us online. Tonight, we're going to go to a place that is the darkest event ever recorded in history, yet it is the most beautiful. Tonight, we are going to go to a place of brutality and punishment that has never been seen again like this, Yet, it's a place of complete freedom. Tonight, we're going to go to the place of deepest pain and suffering that will never be seen again. And yet, it is perfect. And tonight, the place that we're going to go is I bet all of us, including me, are going to feel some guilt. Because in some way we all contributed to this event. But we will find peace here. We are going to a place that we would least expect to feel and experience the fullest depth of God's love. Like no other event ever recorded in the Bible and any event that will ever happen again. We will have a front seat tonight through one eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus that happened on that very first Good Friday over 2,000 years ago. We are going to get very near Jesus on the cross and we're going to look up. We will stand next to an eyewitness who stood closest to Jesus not only during the crucifixion, but the events leading up to it, and we will see, see and we will hear through him. And we will witness tonight one of the most unexpected changes on one of the most unexpected days in all of history. So welcome, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're with us online. If you're a guest with us, we're thankful you're hanging out with us tonight. My name is Brian. I'm our lead pastor. In case anybody did forget over the last four or five weeks. <laughs> We've been going through since last Sunday, Pastor Eric kicked us off on a series called Unexpected because the Holy Week, starting Palm Sunday, every day of the week, if you've been watching our podcast and everything this week, every day is unexpected. And the depth of unexpectedness of each event increases throughout the week. And tonight, going into Good Friday and reliving that Good Friday is very unexpected from those who witnessed it. The eyewitness, the closest person 
to the crucifixion of Jesus was the centurion. That short video you watched just before I came up, that's from the movie Risen. It shows the crucifixion and the resurrection of days following the crucifixion through the eyes of Roman officers, Roman military officers. But we're going to look through the eyes of one officer, one soldier, the centurion. To give you a little background on the centurion so you kind of get an idea of why this is so important to see it through his eyes is the, the centurion was a Roman army officer. We have several Roman officer, or sorry, several army officers here tonight with us and soldiers and watching us. The centurion was the backbone of the Roman army. He was in charge of how many men? We would say 100 because a centurion is a Latin word for 100, but he would normally be in charge of 60 to 100 men. He was responsible for their training. He was responsible for giving them their assignments. He was responsible for maintaining their discipline, which he did very well and very strictly. The uniform we have up here is a centurion's uniform, a replica. He has a breastplate of chainmail armor. He has the, the, here on the side is the dagger they would carry. On this side is a short sword, double-edged sword. They use most of the time for fighting. We have his cape here. We have his shield. The helmet is unique. The helmet is unique because the centurion had this nice mop thing on top of his helmet. And the reason why is the others didn't in his 100 men because they always wanted to know where he was. He stood out. And that allowed him to stand out so his group and his men always knew where he was. One thing about the centurions, which might be a little different from military today, is the centurions always led from the front. They were the best of the warriors. And so you can imagine they had a very high casualty rate. But they were always led from the front. They were always closest to the action. The centurion was responsible to others. First, the centurion worshipped many gods from a Roman polytheistic stance. He worshipped many gods, but probably his favorite was Mars, the god of war. He was also loyal to the province. Rome occupied and ruled most of the world 2,000 years ago, and he was responsible and loyal to the governor of the province in which he worked. So in this case, if I was in Jerusalem, I would have been loyal to Pontius Pilate, the governor, the prefect of the province of Judea. But he was sworn to serve and die for his emperor, and the emperor during that first Good Friday was Tiberius. Now, those of you who know me personally know I am a coin nerd. I love collecting coins from the biblical era. I want to put one up here and show you. Tiberius was a big deal. This is a denarius. Here's one. This is an actual denarius. 2,000 years ago, Tiberius ruled for 20 years. He ruled during Jesus' time. This is his image. That's his mom, Livia, on the other side. Livia, just you want to, there you go. The reason why it's kind of important to show you this coin is that that's a denarius, a day's wage. So everybody who worked got a day's wage at the Roman coin with his image on it. So his image was everywhere. The centurion was 
so loyal he would die for his emperor. In the New Testament, we have seven different centurions that are named. There's a centurion, here's a couple of them, who went to Jesus to heal his servant. There was a centurion, Cornelius, in the book of Acts, who became a believer and was baptized. There was a centurion who escorted Paul all the way to Rome and was shipwrecked with him. But the centurion I want to focus on tonight is the one in the very first Good Friday story during Holy Week. He is recorded in three of the four Gospels. His assignment, our centurion we're going we're to look at tonight, his assignment was Jerusalem. Now, for our soldiers here and our army, our retired, our veterans, Jerusalem as an assignment would have been the armpit of all assignments. Now, for those of you serving in Fort Riley, I've heard you say this before, that sometimes Fort Riley, especially for the people from the south, is like one of the armpit stations of the U.S. Army. Unless you're a hunter-gatherer, you love it, right? But Jerusalem was not a good assignment. It smelled, it was hot, and most people there hated the Romans. While it was a province, it was a tough place to serve. During this Holy Week, Passover, the little town of Jerusalem, which is about, we always share this, it's about the size of Manhattan of about 50,000 people during this time. But put the wall around downtown Manhattan, the city park in downtown, that's how big Jerusalem was. Put 50,000 people there, but Passover is when everybody comes back. So put hundreds of thousands of people in downtown Manhattan. And so Rome would increase the guard they would send a, probably an entire legion, 6,000 men, because of the upstart Judeans, and to keep any type of thing during Passover, their religious zealot time quelled. The centurion of our biblical story is in charge of an execution squad. Execution squads are very good at what they do. Anybody that Rome executes, and they execute a lot of people, anybody who was against Rome, convicted of a capital crime, was placed down on crosses, and they were flogged, and they were beaten. These execution squads were so good, they would get them so close to death, but they would still wait. Then they'd get them on a cross, and they'd be there for days in agony. And they did it in the most public places. These guys were really good at what they did, and the centurion led them. The centurion, I would guess, had witnessed many, tens if not hundreds of people nailed to a cross and suffering. I imagine a centurion of our story, he does this under command, and I imagine his heart was as hard and apathetic as any, for he's heard every scream, every wailing, every suffering that goes over hours if not days, and he's seen it probably hundreds of times. When we look at the centurion, his execution squad, and we go through, if you line up all three gospels and go through them together, we would know that they were present the night that Jesus was arrested on Thursday night because the gospel of John records that a commander and his regiment or his contingent were there during the arrest. We know that Jesus went through six trials from Thursday night to the earliest morning of Friday and we know two of those trials were in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, the governor for Rome, and we know that the centurion and his men would have been there at least for those two trials. 
We know that his men would have led Jesus to that first trial with Pontius Pilate, where Pontius Pilate's trying to find what it is with Jesus that's to be declared that he be that he suffer capital punishment. And so Pilate sends this centurion as execution squad off with Jesus just to flog him, hoping that that would satisfy the crowd. The centurion would give the orders, his men would take Jesus, they go to the praetorium, and the centurion watches while Jesus is stripped naked, tied to a post, and he's flogged. To be flogged is a whip with many leather ends, with pieces of, of bone or metal at the end. It's designed to open up the flesh. Jesus would have been strapped down to the post and the centurion would have watched while they flogged him. It wasn't 40 lashes. It was until they felt they got him close enough but just not there. And then he watched as his men put a purple robe, a staff, a fake stick in his, arm, in his hand to be like a staff and they put a crown of thorns on his head. And he watched while his soldiers knelt in front of Jesus and mocked him as a king and spit on him and struck him on the head. And they take Jesus in his robe and his crown and they take him back to Pilate. And Pilate puts him in front of everybody and says, hoping that that's enough, and the crowd screams, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands, which means he gives the order. And so the centurion and his execution squad take Jesus back Jesus is stripped again. The robe comes off. He's put on to his normal clothes he had before. And then they give him the crossbar to carry from where they are. This is about 8 o'clock in the morning, all the way through the crowds of Jerusalem, the hundreds of thousands who are awakening to celebrate that day. The Bible records there were many people. The Bible records there were a large number of people as Jesus was led by the centurion and his squad through the city, out just beyond the walls to a place called Golgotha. It says that women mourned and wailed all along that road for Jesus. The centurion witnesses all of it. So now we join the centurion in the story as front row witnesses to the crucifixion. Jesus is stripped a third time. The centurion watches as his soldiers divide up Jesus' garment. There's one garment that has no seams in it, and they cast lots. They throw dice for it. The centurion orders it. There's two other men that are convicted of capital offenses with him. They're, the crosses are laid down. All three men are nailed through their hands and through their feet to the cross. And the crosses are tipped up into holes. The centurion follows the order of Pontius Pilate and he hammers a sign above Jesus' head that says, this is the king of Jews. As a joke and a mockery. It is now 9 a.m. in the morning. For the next six hours, the centurion witnesses the agony and the suffering of those hanging on the cross. He's right there, the closest. 
He witnesses the crying and agony of, of at least in the gospel describing four women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who the Bible records are just a short distance away. For several hours, he witnesses people walking by and jeering and mocking and hurling insults at Jesus, including the leading religious leaders. And he's wondering, why are all these people so focused on this guy? And then the centurion hears one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insult him by saying, so if you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. In that span of six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., we have to imagine this as we look at the scripture that the heart of the centurion changes. This hardened heart that is following the orders of executing Jesus is softening. And there's all these events. There's so many I haven't described here that can change a hardened heart, but there's four events that I think really stand out that would shake the hardest heart watching what's going on this day. Early in the crucifixion, the very words of Jesus penetrate the centurion's heart. It's recorded in Luke 23, verse 34. Put it up here for us. Where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is early on when Jesus is placed on the cross. It's right at the part where they're gambling on his clothes. He has seen many people cry out for forgiveness. He's never seen anybody ask for forgiveness for him. The second event I think that really hit his heart and even further penetrated the centurion's heart comes out of Luke 23, verses 40 through 43. After the first criminal insults Jesus, the second criminal responds. And this is what the centurion hears him say. The second criminal says, don't you fear God? He's looking right at the guy who just insulted Jesus on the cross. He says, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man, Jesus, hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Imagine hearing this to the ears of a non-believer. That criminal knew Jesus had the power of the kingdom of heaven in him. And he knew that Jesus had the power to decide that man's eternal fate. The third event 
was all around him. At noon, the skies changed. Jesus has been on a cross for three hours, and it records this in Luke 23, verse 44. It says, by this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. The centurion has never seen anything like this. This is not an eclipse. This is the sun gone for three hours. And what we know during those three hours is God pours out the sin of all humanity on his son. And I think at that part, the centurion's heart is further shook loose as he realizes he's no longer in control. And at three o'clock, after six hours, Jesus' last words, I think, took the centurion's breath away. The first one's recorded in John 19.30 where Jesus said, it is finished. He cries it out. And in the gospel of Luke chapter 23, he hears Jesus say this. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, Jesus breathed his last. The centurion knew that this man willingly went to the cross. And he died for a purpose. And he trusted his God with his very soul. The day is full of unexpected events, but there's one event that happened next that should take our breath away. One phrase, there's only one phrase in the Bible in all three biblical accounts that says something that the centurion actually says. As he sits there in the front row in the execution of Jesus, and it's recorded in Mark 15, verse 39. The scripture reads this, when the Roman officer who stood facing Jesus saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. This man truly was the son of God. He yells it. This is a confession, but it's more than a confession. This is a conversion, but it is so much more than a conversion. This is a rejection we see in the centurion's heart of everything that is false for everything that is true. The centurion denounced Everything for Jesus in that statement. He denounced that Jesus was guilty. As a matter of fact, in the air gospel, he says, surely this man was innocent. He denounced his role in the execution. He knew he was wrong. He denounced everything he committed his life to, including his emperor, Caesar. And he's denouncing himself. 
He announced those seven words. This man truly was the son of God. Why is that so important to us? Can I show you that coin again? Why I love these coins? Because they tell such a story. Tiberius, the emperor to this centurion, the man he pledged his life to. If you read the superscription around there, it's in Latin. But let me read it for you. What it says around the head of Tiberius there is it says these words, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Let me break that down. It means Tiberius, son of God Augustus. You see, ever since Julius Caesar lived they believed Caesar was God. Behind Julius Caesar was Augustus Caesar. And behind Augustus was Tiberius. Everyone was God. And on this coin that everybody carries, it says Tiberius, son of God. The centurion confessed the true son of God, a confession that could cost him his life. To our kids, you got this crayon thing to draw on when he walked in. You're are coloring this very moment right now. I ask the worship team to join me because I think this is a special time that I want to share with all of us together. This Good Friday, we all came here to glance upon the cross, to get up close and to experience through a set of eyes that maybe we've never seen before. The cross, I think, takes our breath away for how violent and ugly it is, but also for how beautiful it is. For on this cross is our ugly sin taken by Jesus. And he removes the ugliness and the pain and the suffering of our sin by paying the price for our sin with his life. so we can be beautiful in God's eyes. <laughs> but I don't want you sharing or declaring what the centurion said. I don't want us saying truly this was the Son of God. I want us to say this instead. Can you put up that one phrase for me? I don't want us to say truly, this man truly was the Son of God. I want us to walk up to the cross and say truly this man is the Son of God. Truly, Jesus is not only the Son of God, he is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world.
by his death on the cross. We declare this in community and we declare this together in communion. That's what communion's all about. So let me give you a couple directions. If our servers would come forward to the stations, they're gonna be safe. But we're gonna do communion a little differently than we have been. But as we go into worship, I'm gonna ask you to come up to the aisles here, to come out to this aisle and come out to this aisle. Come forward. Safely, they will give you a piece of bread and a cup. And I want you to take it back to your seat, but don't eat it. Don't take it, but we'll take it together. But I wanna do this because I want us all to come up to the cross. And as we do that, in our heart, declare he is the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're new to Westview, I guess you're welcome. At home, if you can do this with us, we would appreciate you join us in some way. And we do it as one family. I'm even going to be bold enough to say that if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you feel drawn, come to the table then come talk to us afterwards. But let him draw you to his table. Come up front, close, and be a witness. As you come forward this evening, we want to share with you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that says, Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So as you come to take the body and the blood tonight, let it be with a heart that says, Thank you, Jesus, for the blood.
Would you hold this bread up with me? This bread symbolizes the body of Jesus. The body that we see hung on a cross tonight. But we don't see it as bloody and bruised. Today we see it as the bread of life for all of us. The scripture reads, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread, he broke it into pieces, and he gave it to his closest friends. He gave it to his body of believers, just like us. And he told him, he says, this is my body which is given for you. He says to take this in remembrance of him. So let's take it together knowing that we got up and close and personal tonight the deepest expression of God's love that we'll ever see. Let's take it as one family. The scripture continues. It says, in the same way, Jesus took a cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup, would you hold it up with me? He said, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement between God and his people. Guys, no more covenants. This one covers it all. He said, it's an agreement confirmed what this symbolizes. He says, it's confirmed this juice is a symbol of his blood. He said, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink from it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until the time we can't wait for when he comes back. Amen. Let's take this together. Remembering that because of Jesus, we are forgiven and we are beautiful in God's eyes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, none of us like slowing down tonight, but we couldn't help but look. Father, thank you for inviting us in close and letting us see this through an eye of the very person that ordered the crucifixion of Jesus as the first one whose heart was open to him. Father, if any of our hearts are hard tonight, that this story can shake the hardest heart free. Yes. And if you're there and you're ready to say, I think tonight's the night I need to follow him, would somebody help me come up after this service? We'll be right up here in the front. We want to walk with you just like everybody's walked with us and bring you into the family of God. Father, bless us that we don't walk out of here with broken hearts, but we walk out of here with peace and joy that we can't shut up about you and how much you loved us through your son and how much you love us today. Jesus, we praise you that willingly you went to the cross for us, that you drank the world's sin so we could be free. Tonight, 
We give you the highest honor and praise. And we do look forward to the day you come back. But give us time so we can let others know. Holy Spirit, we need you every day. We need your strength. And we need the confidence that comes from you. Father, bless the people here today, those who are online too, as we go out, that we declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stay standing with us as we close out this evening on a worship note.